want to get right into our study today. I have a lot of ground to cover that's going to take us a little bit into the afternoon. So if you'd open up your Bibles to the 10th chapter of Matthew, we're looking at the first seven verses today, continuing our series this morning of Men on a Mission. So if you'd stand with me, please, in reverence for reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 1. Matthew 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Levius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you once again to bring us here today, and Lord, we just pray that you would bless our people and open up our hearts to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Today, this is the third part of our study in which we're looking at 12 men, the 12 men that were commissioned by Jesus to be preachers of the gospel. These are the first messengers, and they were chosen at a very critical time of Jesus' ministry. They were the first to be chosen by Christ, but they weren't the first one, or weren't the first ones to uh, teach the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, there was another man that came before, and his preaching was intended to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, that was John the Baptist, and he was especially appointed by God to point out Jesus as the one who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And after he did that, John's ministry began to decrease, and he expected that all of his followers would be converted to become followers of Jesus. Now, some of them we find in the group of the apostles, and once John told them that Jesus is the Messiah, they switched to become followers of Jesus, and then John began to fade from the scene. John wasn't in the business of gaining followers for himself, but he expected that those who heard about the kingdom of Christ would begin to follow the one who is actually the king of that kingdom. And so after John baptized Jesus Christ, Jesus began that miraculous ministry. And we find this in the ninth chapter, if you want to look there in verse number 35. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. I want you to notice particularly there that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel? I hope that you know it well. Paul defined it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand... For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that definition tells us that Jesus Christ himself is the gospel. 
His death, his burial, his resurrection, that's what saves us from our sins. And so after three years of ministry, Jesus went to the cross to be the gospel, the one who would save us. And this is why he had to call others to preach. He had to call 12 men and he trained them for ministry because they had to carry on the mission that Christ had of preaching the gospel to the world. Now, what we've been studying for the first part of this chapter is to find out who these men were. They were apostles. They were those that were sent on a mission. They had a very special calling, but they weren't especially very, well, special men. They, they were, weren't, weren't very much different from us. They weren't special until Christ called them out and then he made them to be the, the harbingers of the gospel of Christ, the ones who preach the coming kingdom. Now, our tendency is to think that these men were very much different from us. We think that they are nothing like us, and we could never be what they were. But we find as we look at their lives that they weren't qualified. They weren't standout religious stellar scholars or anything like that. And Jesus chose them precisely because they weren't. They were none of those things. They weren't above average. They weren't holy. They weren't uncommon. At least until Jesus took them and he began to mold them into useful servants for his kingdom. And so we've noticed about them that they were faulty men. And they met Jesus' qualification in only one way. They were sinners just like you and I are sinners. They were imperfect men. And only by the grace of God... In their lives, could God change them and make them servants for the kingdom? And you know that God has never changed that plan? God hasn't deviated from that plan at all. Uh, He never looks for people that are worldly wise, even though some people that are saved are wise. He never looks for people that are rich, although there are some people that are saved that are rich. He never looks for people that are noble, even though there are some people that are called Christians and they are noble. None of these men fell into those categories. They weren't wise, they weren't rich, and they weren't noble. But when Jesus was finished with them, they were wise in the counsel of God's word. They were rich with the inheritance of heaven, and they were noble as citizens of God's kingdom. And they gained all of that by believing in and by being with Jesus. And friends, every one of us, when we trust in Christ, we receive the same benefits by faith in him. If we follow Jesus with the same devotion, if we dedicate ourselves to knowing him in the same way the apostles knew him, then God can take our faults and turn those around and make us useful for his kingdom. So we're looking at the biblical record of these men, and thus far we've had the opportunity to talk about the first four. There's Peter, who is the natural-born leader. Andrew is one who always brings people to Jesus. James, who was the wildly passionate apostle. And James, who was the apostle, or John, rather, who was the apostle of love. And we've noticed that in the list of apostles, these always appear first in the list. When you go and you find the list in other parts of Scripture, these are always the first four. And that's because they were the closest to Jesus. They weren't alike. They didn't have the same type of personalities. Peter was the type A personality. He was uh, always right about things he thought. He had a tendency to open his mouth too much and to speak at the wrong time. He often got himself in trouble. But he was a natural-born leader. And so the disciples fell in behind him, and then Peter became the spokesman for the group. We've also talked about Andrew, who was Peter's brother, 
And he is the one who introduced Peter to Jesus. Whenever you see Andrew in Scripture, this seems to be what he always does. He's always bringing other people to meet Jesus. And he was always overshadowed by his brother. But Andrew didn't mind that. He was willing to work in obscurity without receiving a lot of the credit. Then James is third on this list, even though uh, Peter, James, and John were actually closer than Andrew was. Uh, James was a very passionate man. He and John were given the nicknames of, of sons of thunder. That's what Jesus called them, and James lived up to that designation. He was the first apostle to die for his faith. Herod had him beheaded, and he was so fiery in preaching the gospel of Christ, and he was so much against the enemies of Christ that they were happy to see him killed. And then John is the fourth disciple that's listed, and we're more familiar with him more so than his brother James because of what he wrote in the New Testament. We have the Gospel of John. We have the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We have the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and John wrote that. He was also a son of thunder, but we know him better because he's also called the Apostle of Love. He always wrote on the subject of love, but he wasn't that introspective, wimpy, limp-noodle type of person that most people think of. He was a very strong preacher. He talked about Christ's love for his people. He, he, he's the one who said that if, if we claim to be Christians and we don't love our brothers as we should, then we have no right to say that we're Christians. And so John is always called that apostle of love. But he's somebody who stood strongly against sin. He stood strongly for the doctrine of the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. He had no patience for anyone that claimed to be a Christian but didn't live that way. And he had no patience for anyone who denied any of the fundamental doctrines of the faith. So those are the first four. They're always the first four on the list because they are the closest to Jesus. Well, today we're going to begin the second group, second group of four. In all of those lists, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in Acts, there are always the first four, and then follows the second four, and you always find these four disciples in that second four. Then you get down to the third four, and you always find the same in that group. So today, we're looking at the fifth disciple that Jesus names here, and that is Philip. And we'll call him the Calculating Apostle. And I call him a calculating apostle because in one way that's probably his fault and another way it might have been an asset to him. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But first we want to talk about who he is and who he is not. He's not the Philip that we find in Acts chapter 6. Philip there was one of the first deacons that was chosen in the church. He's called the evangelist. He, he's the one that you find in Acts chapter 8 that went out into the desert and spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot as he was reading uh, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This is not that Philip. This is Philip from Bethsaida. He was from the same hometown as Peter and Andrew. He's the only disciple that's known by a Greek name. Now, he probably had a Jewish name as well, but the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. He's known simply as Philip. And he was from the town of Bethsaida, so that means probably he knew Peter and Andrew and were friends with them, and as we'll see a little bit later, he was friends with this other disciple, Bartholomew. The Bible doesn't tell us about Philip's occupation. In the 21st chapter of John, we find him along with the disciples, other disciples, fishing. So he might have been a fisherman, we really don't know, or he might have just been one of those guys that likes to go out on a weekend or something and, and fish for fun. 
I don't really understand that. I don't understand fishing for fun. I'd rather watch paint dry, but there are some people that do that, and they like it. So Philip might have been that. He, he really wasn't, uh, may not have been a fisherman by trade, but maybe just liked to fish. And as we move down this list, as we're talking about these different apostles, uh, this second group of four, the information starts to get a little bit more sketchy about them. And by the time we get down to the third group of four, we'll have a hard time finding anything in Scripture at all about them, uh, uh, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, and we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about him. So in the three gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the great wealth of information that we have about Philip is this. His name is Philip. That's all that Matthew and Mark say about him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say only his name is Philip. But we do have another place to go, and this is in the Gospel of John. So I'd like you to turn there, and here is where we find some information about Philip. John chapter 1. And keep your Bibles open here to the Gospel of John, because we're going to spend our time mostly in, uh, in the Gospel of John today. So there are four passages in, in John that give us information about him, and I really like the first one that we have here, because it tells us about Philip's unique call to become a Christian. In John chapter 1, verse number 43, it says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now the reason I really like that, because you look at the way that Philip became a follower of Jesus. The scripture says, Jesus went into Galilee and found him. Remember what Jesus said that his mission was? In Luke chapter 19, Jesus said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And isn't that always what happens in salvation? Jesus looks for you. And I know there are a lot of people that you meet, and they say, I found Jesus, or I found God. The truth is, he's not really hard to find at all because he's already looking for you. Now, from your perspective, it may look like you went looking for him and you found him, but the only reason that any person ever seeks God is because he first seeks you. The Holy Spirit comes and speaks to your heart and tells you to look for Jesus, and that tells you that that the Holy Spirit, that God himself is always there first. And in Philip's case, there's no doubt about this because we have it in the text. The Scripture says Jesus looked for him, Jesus called him directly. Now, the other disciples, they were pointed in the right direction by someone else. John the Baptist told James and John about Jesus. He told Andrew about Jesus. Andrew went and told Peter about Jesus. Here we find that Philip was called by Jesus personally. So Philip's just out there, and Jesus went looking for him, and he walked up to Philip, and he said, follow me. And Philip said, I don't know about that. I need to think about that for a little while. It's not what the Scripture says. Not only did he follow, but he got busy right then finding someone else that he could tell about Jesus. So that's when he went to find Nathanael and told him. But you see a pattern that's developing here among the disciples? It always seems to be this way. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called those 12 apostles, and he gave them one thing for them to do. He said, you go out there and you tell other people about the gospel of the kingdom. Go tell somebody. And that's what God expects every one of us to do. And the only way that the world is going to be reached for Christ, if we do exactly as they did, we go look for people and tell them about Christ. And that's what Philip did. But that's not normal the way that Philip came. It's not normal 
for Christ to go just looking for these disciples and say, follow me. And God doesn't work that way today. He doesn't speak to people in dreams and say, you need to become a Christian and save you. He doesn't send angels to anybody and and they preach the gospel to you. You're not going to go outside and find it written in big letters across the sky. You need to become a Christian. That's not the way it's done. God has one way for people to come to Jesus Christ, and we have to be ones to tell people about him. So this is what Philip did. As soon as he heard the message, he went to tell a friend about Jesus. And do you know that friendship is one of the big keys about soul winning? I've heard some preachers say, don't ever make friends with a lost person. Stay away from them. Get as far away from them as you can and just interact only when you have to. Did you know that the largest church in the world is located in Seoul, South Korea? And what they're taught to do on a regular basis, these people just will even do this. They will go and move into apartment complexes And they'll start to make friends with the people there. They'll invite them into their homes to have a meal with them. And by making friends, they lead people to Jesus. And that church has become a church of over 500,000 people of using that method of just inviting friends to hear about Jesus. Well, we go a little bit further in John over to chapter 6. And this is the next time that we see Philip. And, And here, perhaps we start to see some faults developing. And we're not really looking for blame or to find fault, but I just want to show you that the apostles were not super saints. They made mistakes just like we do, and Jesus had his hands full trying to straighten these guys out. Now, we're not going to read all of this, so let me set the stage for you. This is about the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. That's what we call it, but it was really more a miracle of feeding about 20,000 people. The scripture says there were 5,000 men besides the women and the children that were there. And so that probably made the crowd swell to somewhere around 20,000 people. So there's this huge crowd that's following Jesus. And I want you to notice in verse number 2 the reason that they were following. It says, And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. Now right there, you see what the crowd saw. They saw the miracles of Jesus. In Matthew 9, we just read a moment ago, Jesus went about all the towns and the villages in Galilee. He healed people of all these various diseases. He cast out demons. And so these people saw what Jesus could do, and there was always a great crowd following him. Philip saw the very same things. In John chapter 2, Philip saw Jesus turn water into wine. Now, that was a different type of miracle. He took one substance and he turned it into something else. So there's this huge crowd that's following Jesus. The people are hungry. And then Jesus turns to Philip to speak to him in verse number 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And in the next verse it says why that Jesus asked Philip the question. He was testing him. Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he tested Philip to see how he would react. So Philip had seen the miraculous healings. He saw Jesus turn water into wine. But when Jesus asked him this question, he was perplexed. He didn't know the answer to it. So you see him in verse number 7 starting to calculate. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Now, there is Philip, the human calculator. 
As soon as Jesus asks the question, the bells and the whistles, everything starts turning in his brain, the gears start turning, and Philip's trying to figure out how much is it going to take to feed all of these people. But it never occurred to him that Jesus was God. Do you think that's a poor testimony for a preacher? If it never occurred to me that Jesus was God, would you let me stand up here for even five minutes to preach to you? And yet that was Philip. It never occurred to him that Jesus is God. So he calculated it out when the right response would have been, Jesus, why don't you just pull up some grass and feed these people? Turn it into something they can eat. Turn it into food. Why don't you just dip some water out of the sea and make it RC Cola? Why don't you just grab some leaves off the tree and make moon pies out of it? That's what we eat in the South, RC colas and moon pies. So he says, why don't don't you just do that? Or better still, why didn't just Philip say to Jesus, Jesus, why don't you just send some manna down from heaven? Why, Why don't you send some quail down from heaven to feed all of these people? And isn't that what God did? He fed people for 40 years in the wilderness by sending them manna and quail. But it never occurred to Philip after seeing all those miracles that Jesus could whip up, a, whip up a feast just by saying the words. And God can do it, can he? He's the creator of everything. Jesus Christ is the agent by which the world was made. God makes food for billions of people every single day of the week. But Philip failed the test. Now, he passed the math test, but he failed the theological one. And when you think about that, isn't that a lot like people in church today? There are people in the church that say, no, we can't do that. We don't have enough money to to do that project. We can't send a missionary $5,000 to buy a van to take people to church. We can't send $4,000 to lepers and orphans in India to help them. We can't do that in this economy. That's impossible for us to do. And people start calculating it out. How could we ever do such a thing? And, we're, and you're right about that. If we're the ones that are doing the calculating, we can't do those things. It's impossible for us. But throw the calculators away and remember that Jesus is God. Have faith and forget the figures. The scripture says all things are possible with God. And so Jesus took two sardines and five biscuits and he fed 20,000 people and had leftovers besides. He's not limited by human calculations. Now, let's look briefly at the next two instances because I still want to talk to you about Bartholomew today. But Philip had some more trouble, and he struggled with with just being an ordinary guy. In the 12th chapter, verse number 20, there's another incident, and, and there were some Greeks that came to Jerusalem for Passover, and they were looking for Jesus. Now, they'd heard about him. They were looking for him. And so it was only a natural thing that they would go to Philip. Philip is the one with the Greek name. And so in verse number 21... They say to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip said, All right, great, I'll take you to him, let's go. No, Philip was stumped again. These are Gentiles that want to see Jesus. And Philip was thinking, I'm not too sure about that. I, I, I think I need to get some advice on this matter. And so Philip went to Andrew to ask him about it. Now, Peter would have already put him on the church bus and gave him suckers to keep him happy until they got there. But, but, but Philip's not too sure about the whole thing. Gentiles want to see Jesus. We've got to have a business meeting about this. We've got to get the deacons together and decide whether that's the right thing to do. So same old Philip. He's calculating, trying to figure things out first. 
And then we see the problems of an ordinary guy, not a super saint in chapter 14. This is three years of watching Jesus, after three years of listening to him, seeing the miracles. Here is the last chance that Jesus had to be with the disciples. It was on the night in the upper room, and Jesus observed the Passover with the disciples. He gave them the Last Supper. And Jesus told them that he was going away to prepare a place for him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he was talking about going away to heaven to prepare a place for them. Now, if you look at this in verse number 6, Jesus is actually answering Thomas, but Philip butts in. Jesus saith unto him, that is to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. And in verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Now you talk about a bonehead statement. Three years of theological training. Philip is a junior in Bible college, ready to be a graduating senior. And he says to Jesus, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied with everything that you say. Verse number 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how saith then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And so Jesus said, Philip, you knucklehead, what have you been doing all this time? You making spitballs while I've been teaching everybody? What's wrong with you? Well, that's what I would have said. He didn't say that. And, and uh, Jesus had patience with him. There are church members that make me react that way. I mean, I go to my office and beat my head against the wall. But not Jesus. He had, he had patience. So there you have Philip. Jesus chose him, so he had to have the patience to put up with him. And thank God that he is patient with us. Because you think about the many bonehead decisions that we make every single day. And Jesus just said, here we go again. And he has to come back to us again, and he has to straighten us out one more time. Well, we don't know much else about Philip. I do know this. He got it together. He had to have because Jesus always makes things right. He had to be a strong disciple. He was going to preach. He had to uphold the gospel of Christ. So I know that he got straightened out. He had to be to be a great witness. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Philip. Tradition says they took Philip and they hung him up by his ankles. They poked holes in his ankles and slowly let him bleed to death. And so the great witness was silenced. Well, let's look again at one more, or look at another one. This is the sixth one that we have in the list. And this is Bartholomew. And we'll call Bartholomew the student of Scripture. Now stay with me here a little bit longer. I I, I can't turn the hymn books into hamburgers, but so everybody make your stomachs growl together until I'm finished. But, But here's Bartholomew. And we have just one Scripture in the Bible about him. Go to John chapter 1 again. Bartholomew is... Nathaniel. Only one time that we see him in Scripture besides the mention of his name, and this is in John chapter 1 at the end of the chapter. Bartholomew is actually his last name. Simon was called Simon Barjona, and that simply means he was the son of Jonas or the son of John. And whenever you see that bar in front of something, that means the son of. So Nathaniel was Bartholomew, which is the son of Tolmai. Now, Nathaniel was a different sort than Philip. 
Uh, Philip had some trouble recognizing deity even when it hit him in the head with a two before. Nathaniel's different about it. He recognized the supernatural power of Jesus and he was thrilled that he'd come into the presence of God. Now, Nathaniel's the student of Scripture. And let me show you why. Look at the 43rd verse again. We read it a moment ago. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathaniel, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There you could say, Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Now, verse number 45 shows us that Nathanael had spent some time studying about the Messiah. And if you lived under that heavy, oppressive weight of that, of that nitpicking religious system that they lived in, you'd be looking for somebody to deliver you from it too. So Nathanael had been studying this thing about the coming of the Messiah. He's studying the scriptures, and he's not like the Pharisees. He's not like, uh, he has a lot of talk and he has no show. He has no false pretenses. And we'll see that in just a moment in the comment that Jesus makes about him. So Philip was directly called by Jesus, but Nathanael was brought to Jesus by Philip. He'd been studying Moses and the prophets. He was very much aware of what the prophet Micah said that about the Messiah. Micah said that... The Christ would be born in Bethlehem. So Philip comes to Nathanael and he says, We have found him whom the prophets was talking about. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And that didn't sound quite right to Nathanael. He knows too much about Scripture for that. The Messiah is not going to be from Nazareth. He'll be from Bethlehem. And so Nathanael says to him in verse 46, Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Now, if you want to see an ordinary man with an ordinary reaction, this is it. If there is a problem with Nathaniel, we find it here. He made a broad, sweeping generalization about people in Nazareth. He said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Now, I'm not too sure about that. Because when we were in Nazareth, we saw a restaurant with this huge bucket on the top of it. I think I got a picture for it. For you. It said, KFC. Nathaniel says nothing good comes from Nazareth. Well, there are some good things that come out of Nazareth. So nothing comes good from Nazareth. And there we find his fault. The fault is prejudice. He just pegged everybody from Nazareth as no good. Now, do you think prejudice would be a problem for an apostle? How are you going to reach the world for Jesus Christ if you think that you're better than some other people? How are you going to do that? You, you, how, what, what are you going to do? You're going to turn your nose up at certain people? What, what will you do? You're going to pick which people that you ought to give the gospel to? Are you going to decide which towns that you go to to preach the gospel? Does it mean that there are, are some souls that are not as precious to Christ as others are? That's what Nathaniel thought about Nazareth. And he was right about it. Nazareth had a terrible reputation. Nazareth was one of the last stops before you got into Gentile territory. It sat right on top of a hill, and right underneath it, there was a road that went from Egypt down in the south to Asia in the north, and all the riffraff, all the Gentiles, everybody else, they went up and down that road, and it was a wicked city. It had that kind of reputation. That's why Nathaniel said it. Nathaniel didn't like people that came from Nazareth. But you know, there's a problem with that, and the problem is none of us is any good. 
There's not one of us that's an inch closer to God because we're white, we're black, we're yellow, we're green, we're, we're purple. God loves Barney too. I mean, he loves people of every, every kind. You know, I grew up in the South where color made a lot of difference. It even made a difference when you went to church. Some people were accepted in church and some weren't. And one of the things that I like about being here at Berean is the diversity that we have here because it reminds me that there are people, God has his people among all the peoples of the world. God has his people, uh, and it doesn't make any difference what, what race that you are, what country that you're from, all of us need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, Nathaniel's generalization about Nazareth was wrong. His first assessment of the information that he was given was wrong. Now, he was right. The Messiah will not come from Nazareth. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And when he found out a little bit more information about Jesus, then he knew that he had the truth. Well, actually, he found out even before that he recognized something. We're going to look at that. Now, we, we've got the bad part out of the way. Nathaniel's ordinary just like us. We claim maybe that we don't have prejudices, but all of us do, and we have to fight that off. Now, look what Jesus says about him. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Jesus said two great things about Nathaniel. He said he is an Israelite indeed. What does that mean? Well, it means that he was really earnest in seeking the Lord. Here is a man who really wants to find out the truth. Now, some of the apostles were not Israelites indeed. Matthew wasn't. Matthew was a secular Jew. We're going to talk about him next week. Matthew was a secular Jew. He knew Scripture, but he didn't care about it. He had no interest in it. Now, I remember the guide that we had when we were in Israel. She was a secular Jew. Now, she was married to a more orthodox type, and she went through all the motions of being a practicing Jew only because her husband was more religious than she. But Nathaniel was a true Israelite. He was one who was really seeking to worship and obey Jehovah God. Now, notice the other thing that Jesus says about him. He says, in whom there is no guile. And that is a really interesting reference because what it actually means, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob was the deceiver, wasn't he? His name means supplanter. It means a deceiver. Jacob fooled his father, uh, Isaac, into, into giving him the birthright to belong to his brother. He was terribly deceptive. He was deceived himself by his father-in-law Laban, but Jacob paid him back with equal deception. So Jacob was a conniving Jew. He started out badly, and God had to get him straightened out. But Nathanael received this great compliment from Jesus. Jesus knew his heart. He knew what Nathanael was really after. And so Jesus said to him, Nathanael, you are not a hypocrite. Now, if Jesus met us face to face today, would he say to us, you're a Christian who's not a hypocrite? We'd have a hard time escaping that. I'll tell you, the preacher won't get over that hurdle. Nathaniel, he said, you're not a hypocrite. And listen to the reaction of Nathaniel to that comment. Nathaniel saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now that's the same thing as Nathaniel saying, How could you know my heart? How do you know what I've been thinking? How do you know what I've been doing? 
And Jesus said, before Philip ever got to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now here's where it helps to have some good commentary. John Gill says on this scripture, Christ gives two instances of his omniscience. The one is that he knew Philip had called him. He was privy to all that passed between them, though they were alone. And the conversation was had in the most private manner. Christ knew what an account Philip had given of him and what objection Nathanael had made. And then he goes on to explain that sitting under a fig tree was a common thing for people to do in those days. When you were studying, when you were thinking about Scripture, you'd go find a fig tree. Why? Well, because it's hot. It's arid in that country. You're looking for a a place that's cool. And a fig tree throws out its branches and sheds a lot of, uh, gives a lot of shade. And so if you wanted to go to a place to meditate, get where it's cool and to think about things, you would go and sit under the fig tree. That's the whole purpose of what's written here. He was sitting under the fig tree. Now, when, when Jesus said that to Nathaniel, Nathaniel knew that Jesus had read his mind. And Nathaniel saw what only God can do. He knew about the conversation that had taken place between Philip and Nathaniel. He knew the objection that Nathaniel had made. He knew that he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so Jesus reached him in a way that only he could. He he showed him things that only God can do. Jesus is omniscient God. Now that's a whole lot different from Philip. After three years of, of seeing Jesus and watching him, Philip had trouble with deity. But Nathaniel got it the very first time that he ever spoke with Jesus. Verse 49 says, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. And Jesus sort of marveled that about that in his own way. And he said in the next verse, Do you believe this because I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see a whole lot more than this. And now you look at this next statement. And folks, here is why I love to study the Bible so much. Oh, just putting us all together. Verse 51, he said unto him, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now see if you can make the connection there with the 47th verse. Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no Jacob. And in verse number 51, he says, You'll see heaven open, And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So what scripture do you think that Nathaniel was thinking about sitting under the fig tree? How about this one in Genesis 28 verse 10, Jacob's dream. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. How many of you ever heard of Jacob's ladder? When Jesus said this, it must have stunned Nathanael. Out of the hundreds of Bible passages that Jesus could have chosen, he chose the very one that Nathanael was thinking about. This is the whole purpose of saying, here is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. He knew the scripture that he was thinking about, and he began to show him what Jacob's ladder was. Jacob's ladder is Jesus Christ. This is the communication between heaven and earth. It comes through Jesus Christ. 
And he said, Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. You'll see things you never even dreamed possible. All communication that takes place between heaven and earth must go through Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I'd love to preach on that scripture for a while, but you're hungry and I can't turn hymn books into hamburgers, so we're going to get done here in just a second. But this is the whole thing here, folks. This is what he's talking about. He says, you, 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 you've got to come through Jesus Christ. He is, the, he is God. When you want to talk to the Father, you've got to go through Jesus Christ. When you pray, you must go through Jesus Christ. You can't start off with the priest and go talk to him and ask him to intercede to God for you. You have to go through Jesus Christ because he is the only mediator. There's a lot of truth in that and love to preach it. You don't go and pray to God and leave out the name of Jesus. You don't say some father up there somewhere, the God that everybody seems to believe in or whoever God you choose to believe in. If you want to touch God, you better come through Jesus. It's the only way that you can come. So here are six apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Bartholomew. They are men that had faults. Jesus had to work with them. They were diverse, but Jesus pulled that group together And he made them one unit working for the kingdom of God. So he had to overcome their pride and their prejudice and their doubts, their stubbornness and their ignorance. And folks, that's the hope for Berean Baptist Church. We are different people. We have our faults. There are all kinds of things that are different about us. But God pulls us together and he can make us servants for his kingdom. He can make us witnesses and a great light for him in this community. The only thing that we have to do is the same thing that the apostles did, is when he calls, we follow. When he calls and he says, do it, we do it. And that's what God wants us to be, the witnesses that these apostles were, because we are the ones that have to carry on their work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we've had together today. And Lord, as we look into the lives of these apostles and we see they're, they're, they're not very much different from us at all. Just the ordinary people with people with faults, but they were used in great ways by you. And, and the same thing can happen here in Berean Baptist Church if we just have people that are willing to surrender everything to you. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to hearts today. If there's someone here that's lost and doesn't know you, May they turn to you as, as we, just, we just looked at this. The only mediator, the only way to get to heaven, the only way to communicate with God is to come through Jesus Christ, the precious son who gave his life for us. Help someone to see that today. And then for Christians, draw us and use us and make us mighty witnesses for you in this community. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.